Listen to the word of God. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector called Levi sitting at the tax collection station. He said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make a wedding attendance fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will one tear the new garment, but the piece from the new one will not match the old garment. Similarly, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will spill out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires the new wine, but says, the old is better. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, in the midst of the many words that are both within and without, may we listen to you and your unchanging word that comes to us through the word proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When my oldest son was in college, he worked for George Perrier. And at one point, Lebec Finn, George Perrier's restaurant, was the only five-star restaurant in Philadelphia. And as my son would describe Perrier, he was a brilliant chef, a horrible businessman, and a lousy human being, all right? <laughs> and uh, Ben went quickly from being a bartender to an assistant manager, mostly because everyone got fired on a regular basis there. He ended up working for Perrier probably longer than most people did. And he told this story. This happened in uh, probably around 2007 or so, somewhere in that area. And there was an older man who would come to a regular basis to Brasier Perrier was um, one of his restaurants that Ben worked at. And Walt had made a fortune. Um, ben couldn't remember, but he thinks he's the one who patented uh, the hangers in hotels. You know when you go in and the hanger, you can't quite get the hanger off? Okay, you could you could become a millionaire designing that, you know. I, while the rest of us are are upset with it, you know, that's I think that's what he did. His name was Watt. He was also a Holocaust survivor. And Ben always said, I, "Ben, I never. Uh, every time I waited on him, I, I couldn't help but but be reminded of, of what he had been through, or try, couldn't even imagine what he'd been through." And Watt had this wonderful wine collection, an amazing wine collection. And periodically, he would bring his own sommelier into the restaurant and usually would invite another guest and he would bring this amazing bottle from his vintage. Um, 
And one day he came in with a 1937 Rothschild. Okay. And Ben says I was very nervous, so because I was handling the bottle, and he said I went to put up, went to put it up to present the bottle to him like you always do, because that bottle has been on its back for 60 years. Don't do that. All right. And so the sommelier worked and worked with the wine, uh, slowly drained it, you know, with the fire, the candle, and everything, and just worked and worked with this wine. And Walt um, really liked Ben, so he invited him over to have a sip of this 1937 Rothschild, okay? Probably a thousand plus dollar bottle of wine, okay? And Ben took a sip and he said, it was the absolute worst thing I've ever had in my life. <laughs> okay, you need to remember, he was president of his fraternity, so he has, had drunk a lot of really bad stuff, all right? <laughs> and he said it was chalky, it just, it, you know, it just, you know, he said that, and I tried not to make a face, and when he asked me, what do you think? He goes, oh, it's amazing, thank you so much, right? So, a wine is never too old, right? Until it is. The old is always better, right? Until it's not. Jesus is confronted in these passages, and they all link together. I know there's a lot of text, but they all are under, I think, this, this general idea that Jesus' approach to piety and practice is being challenged. More specifically, the issue is, is who he chooses to be with, right? <laughs> and what his followers do and don't do. Now, in the world that Jesus lived in, the Greco-Roman ideal of the good life was one that was lived with moral excellence. A life ruled by reason and virtue that served the common good. That would be the pagan ideal of the good life. The Jewish, the Jewish version of this is not that different, right? You were to live a life in conformity to Torah. And the Torah was the revealed gift of God that taught one how to live Life, both a life that is both pleasing to God, ordered under the one God, and responsible and respectful of the people in the world around me. That's what it meant to live under Torah, to love God and to love your neighbor. Now, I think both of these ideas, the, the Greco-Roman ideal of virtue and living under Torah, I think those are, are probably the highest aspirations of humanity. I don't, I don't think human imagination or human living gets, gets better than those two ideals. And they work until they don't. Now Jesus was Torah observant, certainly was. And he had a vision of how one should live life. But that's not generally what he led with. And he was not afraid to confront religious and cultural norms of his time. That's one of the things that got him killed in the first century. But I don't think Jesus would fare much better in our own time. I mean, people talk about liking Jesus, but when you hear them explain who Jesus is, I don't recognize that Jesus frequently. It's a very different Jesus than shows up in the Bible, right? 
For instance, I think Jesus would be a lousy motivational speaker. Jesus would be horrible at self-help. Yeah, he, he would not sell any books. Now, I do think if Jesus showed up to Congress, it would actually be a unifying event. Because both Republicans and Democrats would say, we gotta kill this guy. <laughs> we gotta get rid of this guy now. Jesus was not particularly interested in human potential. Okay. It's another reason uh, Jesus, Jesus as Jesus is is not popular now, right? Well, he's popular, but we remake him into our own image, right? Which, by the way, is idolatry. Okay. But that's another sermon. So I don't think Jesus was so interested in human potential. I think he was more interested in human probable or reality. He met people where they were, regardless of the state they were in. His new wine approached people where they were, and even more specifically, where they were lacking, right? I'm not here to help the righteous. Now that begs the question, who actually was righteous, <laughs> right? But I'm here to help the sick. That was what his new wine was about. I would argue that's what his new wine is still about as well. And the question for Jesus, what do you do about sin? The reality that humans fall short of God. That we fall short of not only God, but we fall short of the people around us, right? We fall short of ourselves. We ignore God. We hurt those around us. We hurt ourselves. We fail to worship and love God. And our love for others and ourselves is often disordered. By that I mean disordered love is a failure to love in a way that maximizes the benefit, right? For instance, a narcissist is a person who loves themselves too much. A person with low self-esteem doesn't love themselves enough. And they're both guilty of disordered love. And that's part of what sin is, right? Sin covers all of this failure, all of human lack. And these three vignettes that we look at today really are showing us Jesus' new wine approach to the problem of, of human failure, the problem of the fact that all of us struggle, the problem of human sin. Now, I already talked the first one, right? We talked a little bit about the first story, a great story, right? Um, and it is a story about four friends who will do whatever they need to to help their friend, right? But the punchline is Jesus forgiving sins, right? That's what gets them in trouble. Matter of fact, I can see like when Jesus says to this kid or young man or whatever, your sins are forgiven, the guys up on the roof are going, hey, Jesus, it's his legs, man. It's not a sin. We didn't rip up this roof for you to do some religious thing. We need our buddy to walk. We talked about this at the Bible study this week. Which is harder? To heal someone or to forgive someone? Well, because you and I, I don't know that any of you are miracle workers, our first gut reaction is, well, it must be healing is harder. But not for God. 
Forgiveness is a bigger deal. And if you stop and think about how hard it really is to forgive someone who's really wronged you, let alone the cumulative effect of the sin of the world, I think we begin to understand something about Jesus. Mercy is a big deal. Ultimately, I think genuine mercy and forgiveness does take a supernatural move of the heart. And then the calling of Levi, which actually echoes last week's sermon about the calling of Peter. <laughs> but, you know, I call you one filthy mouth fisherman, I raise you one tax collector, right? It's, it's up from our perspective, that may not be a bigger deal. But in the first century, it was a huge deal. If you were a tax collector, that meant you were working for the pagans. And the Romans were brilliant. They would tell their tax collectors, you would bid to get the job, and then they'd say, okay, this is how much money we need you to raise. Whatever else you raise, that's your salary. Okay. Giving human nature, just think about that one for a while. When there were terrorist attacks by the insurgents who were fighting the Romans, the first people they often killed were not the Romans, it was the tax collectors. If you became a tax collector, you were kicked out of synagogue. And so Jesus shows up and not only speaks to the guy, but he says, hey, come follow me. Now for, for Levi to drop everything, that was a pretty big deal. By the way, this. He's also named Matthew, so we think they're the same person. Now, what's interesting, too, to think about this, in the next chapter is when Luke, when Jesus calls the 12 apostles. And so you've got Levi, the collaborator. He's also going to call Simon the Zealot, which was part of the guerrilla terrorist, you know, um, opposition to Rome. So can you imagine those two at night? I think Jesus probably had to sleep between them frequently, right? But see, the interesting thing is, we live in this day of polarization, right? We not only disagree, we can't just disagree anymore, right? We don't live, it's part of the biggest problem with our democracy, right? Because you need to be able to disagree and compromise. But we, we not only disagree with people, we have to anathemize them. Jesus just loved them. He didn't care about their politics. And by bringing them together, he was trying to show a new way of living. There's something bigger than your ideology something bigger than your politics. It's something bigger about even the most important causes. It's the community of the people of God. That's part of the new wine. Finally, <laughs> it's almost like he, he's gone out of his way to just make them a little irritated. It's one thing for him to call the tax collector, but then he goes to a party at his house. Again, I don't know how you vision Jesus, right? We talked a couple weeks ago, you kind of often have him as this skinny waif guy. He was a carpenter again before there were 
power tools, okay? And Jesus is at a party having a good time, which drives everybody crazy, right? Except the people who were having a good time with him, right? Jesus came to my house. Jesus came to my house. Can you imagine just what that did alone? Tony Campolo, a great speaker, sociologist, but most people know him from his touring. He was really, uh, he's had a stroke now, he's recovering, but he, one of the most dynamic speakers I've ever heard, very funny. He tells this story, and, and uh, forgive me if you heard it, and I'm not even gonna try to tell it like he does, where he was at a speaking engagement in Honolulu, and he was still on East Coast time. So he's, he's hungry, and it's the middle of the night. Shows up at this all-night diner, and a group of prostitutes come in after their shift. And they're kind of bantering back and forth. And one of them says, hey, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. And they go, they all make fun of her. You go, what, you want us to bake you a cake? And then they leave, and Campalo asks the diner owner, do they come in here at the same time every night? He goes, yeah, they do. He goes, we're going to get her a birthday cake. So the next night, you know, he says, I have this birthday cake. And they come off their, their shift, or whatever you want to call it. And they come in, and he has this cake. And they go, surprise, happy birthday, happy birthday. And they start singing to her. She's in a total state of shock. And he goes, you know, cut the cake, cut the cake. And she, she picks up the birthday cake, and, and she's in a state of, of amazement. She goes, oh, you can't, you can't, please don't cut my cake. This is the only birthday cake anyone's ever given me. And she walks out. And then Tony Campalo said, I don't know what to do. So I said, let's pray for her. And so they get some praying. And finally, the owner of the diner goes, what kind of preacher are you? And what kind of church do you go to? He says, I go to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes. To which the diner owner goes, you know what? I think I could belong to that kind of church. That's the new wine. That's the new wine. You know, American Christianity is so concerned about filling its buildings and I think we do have to take care of our institution, but <laughs> there are a lot of people out there who don't know that anyone cares for them at all. And those are the people that Jesus came for, just like he came for you and me. It wasn't at our accomplishments, it wasn't at our strengths that God came to us, it was where we, we needed, we needed <laughs> to be able to walk. We needed to be able to be invited to the table. We needed to be forgiven. Now, I think we have this temptation to, to throw out the, <laughs> the good, right? In the name of new, we throw out the good stuff and we keep the bad stuff. 
And so this parable is not that easy, right? It's not that as clean as we think it is. But I want to read this quote from Howard Snyder, who wrote a book about 40 years ago called The Problem of Wineskins. He says this, Every age knows the temptation to forget that the gospel is ever new. We try to contain the new wine of the gospel in old wineskins, outmoded traditions, obsolete philosophies, creaking institutions, old habits. But with time, the old wineskin begin to bind the gospel. Then they must burst and the power of the gospel pour forth once more. Many times this has happened in the history of the church. Human nature wants to conserve, but the divine nature is to renew. It seems almost the law that things initially created to aid the gospel eventually become obstacles, old wineskins. Then God has to destroy or abandon them so that the gospel wine can renew humanity's world once again. I think the challenge is for us to be on Jesus' side, right? <laughs> Not to be those people finding fault. But, we have to warn you, the Jesus' side is a wild ride. You will find things that you're not necessarily comfortable with, but you will find ultimately the source of life itself. And more importantly, the people who need so desperately to know that they are forgiven, to know that they are loved, to know it doesn't matter what their past is, but that there is a God who loves them. That is a message that has never gone out of style. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. I invite you to pray with me the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring your light. Where there is sadness, let me bring joy. O Master, let me not seek as much to be consoled as to console, to understand as to be understood, to be loved as to love. For it is giving that one receives, it is self-forgetting that one finds, it is in pardoning that it is in dying that one is raised to new life. Let's continue our worship of giving to God our gifts, our tithes, and our offerings.
and signs and symbols of our lives given to you for loving service. And you said your kingdom come in this church and this community and this world. In Jesus' name we pray. May we see Syria and Turkey and this people tragedy there, people in Ukraine. Yes. For my son's father is suffering from leukemia. My son's father is suffering from leukemia. And other people we know also who are struggling with cancer and tough diagnosis. Lord, you know the needs that are on our hearts in this room. Decisions are decisions that have to be made. Suffering, both in body and life. Our limitations of how to help the people we love who are struggling. Those who are facing tough diagnosis and ones who love them. People 
everything because of natural disasters, because of the violence of humans. We pray that you comfort all those who grieve. Lord, help us to be the kind of church that welcomes others into our midst. We pray for our other brothers and sisters who are worshiping in other places throughout our community as well. Help us all to be light and salt and hope in this world. We pray for those who care for the sick and tend to the infirmed. Those who risk their lives to protect us. For those who teach our children. Pray for our children. <clears throat> In the signs of this moment, we lift up those things we don't know how to pray for. Those things are so personal. And you know our hearts, you know our needs. So hear our individual prayers now. Give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass. 